let's read the scripture for today. It's 1 John 4, 7 to 21. If you're interested in reading from a physical Bible, we have our ushers in the aisles. Just raise your hand and they'll be able to give you a, a Bible. So 1 John 4, 7, 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since, for, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Thank you so much, Eric. Man, we love you, youth team. We're so grateful for you, Eric. We're grateful for your ministry. It's awesome that it's, it's growing. And we have the space to be able to kind of meet, uh, keep up with that. Uh, if you haven't seen the space uh, downstairs that we're getting ready to open up, it's really awesome. So we're excited about that. There's a lot of opportunity uh, with the youth both present and into the future. Uh, happy Thanksgiving week to you guys. A lot to be grateful for. Hope you guys are able to get some turkey if that's your thing. If not... Uh, you know, my wife's side of the family does hot pot. That's good, too, whatever you guys want to do. But uh, today, uh, we're going to start a new series here. And uh, I'm no Bible scholar. I'm no theologian. But I humbly believe that the text in front of us today is perhaps the most helpful in all of the scriptures in terms of helping us understand both what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live as a Christian. Last week, we finished our Explore God series this series where we were asking uh, some of the biggest questions people have about God, faith, and Christianity. And really it was a series looking at some of the reasons for God. Well, in this follow-up series, we're going to be talking about what life with God looks like, what, what that means. So we're going to be talking about it from, from this text that I think is just so foundational on this front. Uh, in this series, this is only going to be a two-parter, it's just a small mini-series, uh, we're going to be looking at the foundation and the core of what it means to be a Christian, what it means ultimately to live as a Christian, the implications of living as a Christian. And this text is so helpful in this regard, it, se it seems to me. Whether, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, 
So for instance, if you're checking out the Christian faith, I imagine this topic today will be helpful to you. You have questions like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What makes a Christian? What does it mean to live it out? Those, those are important questions. But I think it's also really important for those of you who've been following Jesus for a long time. Because especially when it comes to the second thought we're going to get into, this is so profoundly important and so easily missed that we can very easily not be experiencing the fullness of God's love in our life for the reason we're going to be looking at today. Uh, this is just really at the, at the heart of it. So today, the outline is real simple. We're going to talk about what makes a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian, and what does it mean to live as a Christian? What are the implications of, of, of life as a Christian? So let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your spirit to help us to understand your word. And these really important thoughts today of what it means to be a follower of yours, what it means to live out as a follower of yours. Lord, we pray that you would help us from your word understand what it is you have in front of us, and, and would you use your word to help mold us into the people you call us to be. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live as a Christian? Uh, today we are in 1 John uh, chapter 4, and uh, you know it's fun. Last week we happened to be in the gospel account of John. Uh, the gospel, meaning the biographical account uh, recorded by John. So if you know the New Testament and the gospel accounts, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Same John, but years later when he was writing to just early Christian churches, we have preserved in, in this letter here in 1 John. Uh, John and his writings were, are, are relatively unique when it comes to the New Testament scriptures. Uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of the apostles or the main disciples writing about Jesus' life, but John is unique in the sense that he was also one of the main disciples, and yet he was the only one, history tells us, who was not martyred for his faith. John was the only of all the main disciples following Jesus who, were, who was not killed because he was professing that Jesus was crucified and rose again on the third day. And so therefore, John has this unique vantage point of time he has this time to ponder things. In fact, at one point, while he wasn't martyred, he was exiled by an ancient Roman emperor who hated Christianity. So Jesus was just, excuse me, John was just out there just thinking about these things. I love to barbecue, and there's nothing like a good marinade. For those of you guys who like to grill vegetables, meat, whatever, there's nothing like a good marinade. Marinades are awesome, but you have to have the time to do them. Okay, you got to plan for them, and then you got to actually, you got to have to, also have the time to let them sit. And, and whenever the food sits in marinades, it's great because it pulls out just a richness of flavor that you would otherwise not have. It seems to me in John's writings, particularly here in this letter, we have John and his thoughts that he's just been marinating on. He's just been thinking about just what it meant to have gotten to see firsthand Jesus, got to hear his teachings, and just think about some of those implications for those who follow him. So, for instance, John starts his letter back in chapter 1, with this awe-inducing imagery when he says, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So from this vantage point of time, this ability to marinate on what he's been thinking about, he's starting this letter with, oh my goodness, we thought it was pretty cool hanging out with Jesus. We didn't know the half of how, the extent of how cool it was. 
I mean, we, we got to see his incredible miracles and signs. We got to listen to his authoritative teaching and sermons, but we had no clue to the extent how crazy amazing that was. We got to spend time with the great I am. We got to hang out with the one who has no beginning, the one who created it all. And the more John has been thinking about this, he's writing, he's like, the more I th think about this, the more it just blows me away. So with this thought, with this feeling, with this sentiment, with this time to kind of ponder these things, we have this wonderful letter in 1 John with these thoughts on, now in chapter 4, what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live out, live life as a Christian, what makes a Christian, what, what it means to live out as a Christian. So let's get into that now. So first one is what does it mean to be a Christian? What makes a Christian? John tells us with all, these, all this time to consider it. He says in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, everyone who has been born of God and, and knows God. Then verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's John spelling out what it means to be a Christian. What makes a Christian? And I think this is so important because it's so easily missed and it's so easily misunderstood. At least that's been my experience out in the world. I remember meeting a buddy of mine for the first time about 12 years ago when he moved into the townhome next to us. I figured he was out there moving boxes in from his U-Haul so I could go out and just, you know, try to be a help, get to know him. So we're going to know each other as we were moving boxes from the, from the truck into his house. And at one point... He asked me, so what do you do? I was holding a box. I knew exactly on the street where I was standing. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. And I remember this vividly because I remember vividly he recoiled at that. Like he visibly recoiled to the, to the degree of like, should I put this box down and take, you know, let him be? Like, you know, he was, he was visibly shaken by the fact that I was a pastor. I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, you know. Um, I became good friends with him. I got to hear his story. And I got to hear that he had had some experiences in the, in the Catholic Church that hadn't been good. Not, not the terrible, terrible variety, but not, in the, not good in the sense of when he shared them, I was like, okay, I could see why he's, you know, he would have that response. Um, so I got to know him over the years. We had this little shared space patio outside. So we had a lot of conversations, just hanging out down there with a beer or whatever. And he would ask a lot of spiritual, conversation, uh, spiritual um, questions. And so I would, as best I could, try to answer those. A lot of the questions early on were more intellectually based. You know what I mean? They were just more like, how does this work? What does it look like? What does it mean to be Christian? What is those sorts of things. Later on, he started to ask questions that were more personal in nature. And a big reason for that was because his dad had uh, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, been diagnosed with cancer. And so he was working that through. Uh, even considering, remembering these conversations this week, I, I, the my hindsight thought is he was asking us actually a lot of questions about the afterlife and wondering about what happens after we pass away and what, what does that mean and what does it look like, what, is, what does Christianity have to say about that. So we had a lot of conversations of that nature. Well, I remember at one point, I don't remember the full context, but this was a few years into our, our, our relationship and, and conversations, I remember asking him, hey, I'm not trying to like quiz you here, but just for the sake of conversation and understanding where you're, where you're coming from, like, how do you understand what it means to be a Christian. Like, from your understanding, what does the Bible say about one becoming Christian? What, what makes a Christian? And I could, you know, he took a few moments at that. 
could see his you know, software engineer mind kind of churning that over. He took a few moments, and then he said, you know, yeah, I guess what makes a Christian is somebody who goes to church, somebody who prays, uh, somebody who uh, tries to be a good person. Hold that thought. About the same time, around the same time, maybe a year or so later, Cindy and I had decided that we, we felt like God was calling us to start Current, so we started to, you know, uh, do everything we could to try to figure out how to start a church and seek, you know, God's direction and all that. I remember being asked to coffee with a pastor of a very large church in the area. I'm talking several thousand person church. And I was in full bore fundraising mode, so I have to admit, the first thought I had is maybe they have some money they want to give us. We can help, help us get up, up and going as a church. They didn't give any money, but it's okay. <laughs> I don't begrudge them that. Uh, that wasn't their thing. It's, it's fine. Um, but I do remember that conversation. It was a wonderful conversation. He had fit me in between other meetings he had. He had his computer out with an Excel sheet open. Turns out they had just at this very large church done a church-wide survey. And in this church-wide survey, they asked many questions. Well, the one question he was just kind of pulling together all the answers of, of these many thousands-person church you know, survey, uh, he, the question he had out in front was, what makes one a Christian? Like, how does one become a Christian? And he said, do you want to look at the answers? And he had it, like I said, on an Excel sheet, and he had at the top the most popular answers given, the most often given answers, you know, in descending order. So I, I said, sure, I'd love to see this. So I came around behind him, looked over his shoulder. What makes one a Christian? Top of the list were essentially the same answers that my neighbor buddy had, had given me. They go to church. They say prayers. They try to be a good person. And then my eyes just kind of, you know, I just figured, I see the screen. I just kind of kept looking down at all the answers. I stopped around 15, you know, 20th answer. It went down to like 30 or something like that. And my heart started to drop because I'm like, where, where is it? Where is the answer of what makes a Christian, how one becomes a Christian? It's not there. My heart started to sink, unlike with my neighbor, because this is a many thousand person Christian church. Going back to my conversation with my neighbor, when he answered, oh yeah, I think what makes a person a Christian is that they go to church, they say their prayers, they try to be a good person. I said, Chris, that was his name. I said, Chris, it's a wonderful, wonderful thought. And of course, the Bible talks a lot about that. These things are very important, of course. But would it surprise you to say, uh, would it surprise you to hear that actually that misses the point entirely in terms of what makes a Christian? He said, really? I said, yeah. John here is putting it this way. He gets to the heart of it. He says in verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you got the chance to go through the Explore God videos with our small groups this last season, uh, there was this one pastor, author, a guy named John Tyson that I thought, it really, I thought he did a really good job of breaking down kind of the major movements, his word, of the biblical narrative. He said you can really think of the entirety of the Bible's story, the entirety of the Bible's narrative in four movements. I wonder if any of you remember this. He said it's creation, fall, redemption, renewal. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal. So the Bible begins, the first book, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, with creation. And namely, with the creation account of why God made us at all. And that was to be in relationship with him. That's what the garden was all about. Our forebears walking side by side with the Lord. Having conversation face to face. Intimate, personal relationship. That's what it was all about. 
But you don't have to read too far in the biblical narrative, actually just depending on the font size, a page, maybe two, to get to the fall of humankind. So there's creation, but then there's the fall, and the fall is really our rejecting of God. God gave us the agency to choose to love him, as he also, of course, gave us the agency to not choose to love him. And they, slash we, with them, together, regularly reject him. It's what the Bible calls sin. Uh, One of my mentors uh, breaks down the concept of sin in a very uh, easy way to think about it. Sin is really, can be understood by really that middle letter. It's the word I. It's choosing, it's, it's I before God. It's choosing me, myself, over God and his ways. Over, over loving others, for instance, as God calls us to. And what God warned them, us, that when we choose sin, we, we die. And not just the phys- physical type of death, but spiritual death. Namely, being separated from him, the, the true, just, and, and holy God. Now, that's, that's the fall. And that's, and that's, that's why there's the effects of sin in the world, suffering, pain, all the rest of it. We talked about that through the Explore God series. Uh, To me, the concept of sin, even if you don't consider yourself religious, is so helpful in terms of understanding the state of the world because it helps us understand our very nature. Sin is us choosing ourselves over God. And to kind of make the point, like I don't see myself as a Mother Teresa, but I'm trying for one to live a good life, okay? I'm trying my best. I I at least have the inclination to try to be a good person, okay? But I regularly see where I miss the mark and cause pain and hurt to people, including people I love dearly. Say my wife, say my kids, in my lack of patience, in my selfishness, in my greed in various forms. Even the people I love, I can't help hurt. I hurt myself in ways I don't even... Sin is all these ways we choose apart from God that bring pain into the world, but most of which causes us to be separated with the most loving of all relationships, that is the relationship with, with God himself. And notice what John is saying here in the text that we just read. This is love, not that we loved God. It's a fascinating and profound thought. John is saying we don't even have it in us to love God if we wanted to. Not fully, no way. We miss it by a long shot. He's saying, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Romans 3 talks about it much more bleakly. This is the Apostle Paul writing when he says, no one does good. At the end of the day, in a pure sense, no one does good. No one, he goes on to say, seeks God. In other words, what we see here is not only have we been separated from God, there's no way in our own strength our own ability to make our way back to God. The classic illustration of this, I imagine many of you have heard this, is there's a chasm between us and God. We've been separated from him. And there's no amount of good works or good intentions that will get us even markedly closer to him. This is the result of the fall. That's why, for instance, when we read our news feeds, you could just see so much hopelessness in the world. I mean, I was talking to somebody even this week who's like, I can't read the news anymore because I just feel so depressed. There's many wonderful agencies out in the world trying to do wonderful things, but even the wonderful agencies, let alone the not wonderful agencies, even the wonderful agencies are tainted with sin and cause a lot of pain, even as maybe some marginal good. There's a reason there's a lot of hopelessness, but the hopelessness isn't just out in the world. It's not just out in our country. It's not just out in our neighborhoods. It's not just even in our homes. It's in our hearts. God created us to be in a relationship with him, but we rejected him, and we're faced with those realities 
And so that brings us from creation to fall to redemption. God seeing this, seeing us in our state, not wanting to leave us there, chose to send, send his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, is how John puts it. What does that mean, atoning sacrifice? Jesus came into the world to bear our punishment for our sins in our place. The sins that rightfully separate us from a holy and just God. And so therefore, when we talk about what makes a Christian, we talk about what it means to be a Christian, what, how, what, how to become a Christian, it is completely down to the gospel, which literally means good news. It's what we make of what Jesus came to do on our behalf, if we would receive that by faith. What makes a Christian? It's receiving what Jesus did for us by faith. If you were here last week as we celebrated those wonderful baptisms, you may remember the first question I asked of every person being baptized before they were baptized. Do you remember it? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for, for, for your sins and that God the Father raised him to life on the third day? Yes. You're ready to be baptized. What makes a Christian is what we do with Jesus, receiving him by faith, which means, well, let me put it this way. John said it this way in verse 9. It's life through Jesus, verse 10, through his atoning sacrifice. Jesus did not come into the world ultimately to preach wonderful sermons, which we have. Jesus did not ultimately come into the world to perform wonderful miracles to help us see our need for him, which he did. What Jesus ultimately came into the world was to be the way for us, to make a way back into a right relationship with God, to take care of our sins, which means being a Christian is based on unmerited grace through and through. It's just receiving what Christ did. Um, I had the opportunity of meeting with someone this week who's been coming to Current for a few weeks. He got a postcard in the mail. It's been coming out. It's been awesome. Uh, he's, be, he's become punk, becoming a good friend real quick. Have you ever had the, you know, conversations with people where it's like you have a conversation or two and you're like, wow, how do we know each other way better than just two conversations, it seems? Um, and in particular, this is interesting with this with, with gentleman in particular. He's from a different country. So there's just interesting similarities in our stories. But anyways, I got the chance to meet with him. And at one point, he was talking about asking questions about Christianity and Jesus. And, and I had the opportunity to ask him a question that I asked my neighbor uh, years and years ago, not because I was thinking of this week's sermon, by the way. It just came up naturally in conversation. I said, hey, I'm not trying to quiz you, but just out of curiosity, we're having this conversation. What does it mean to you to be a Christian? What makes someone a Christian? He gave a very thoughtful answer, um, but more or less, if I can overly simplify his answer, he said, it's to be a good person. I said, okay, good. And I said, but what, would it surprise you if I said it was, and I walked through the gospel, much of the same way we just talked about today. And then I paused at the end of that, I said, Do you receive that? Is that something that resonates for you? And he said this. He said, when you speak those words, it's as if a burden is coming off of me. And when he said that, I I teared up because I was just like, friend, that is exactly what it is. I've had the privilege of being able to share the gospel with a number of people. I've had the privilege of seeing God work in their life. The people said yes to that, received that. When someone says it that way, I don't have to wonder if it really sank in. Those are literally the words of the gospel. Burden's coming off of me. That's the gospel. The burden has come off in Christ because he has done for you and me what we cannot do for ourselves. He has died in our place for the forgiveness of sins, and we can receive that. That's why it's called the good news. You can receive that today. If you're here today and you're trying to figure it out, and you're trying, what does it make to be a Christian? Is it being a, being a good person? Is it going to church? Is it becoming some weird Christian dude? Like, 
We're going to come back to that one, actually. It means receiving Jesus by faith. What he did on the cross for you and God the Father raising the life so you can have life through him. Through the atoning sacrifice he did for you on the cross. Period. Full stop. That's what makes a Christian. And you can receive that right now in your heart. It's not something you've got to get up and you know, prove it to God already. Jesus did for you what you can't do for yourself. And I would just say, if that's you, you can receive him literally right now in your heart by saying, Lord, I want to receive that. I believe in what Jesus did for me on the cross. I receive life forever because of you raising him to life on the third day. That's what makes a Christian. And if that's you, by the way, we'd love to come alongside you. It could be even beneficial to you to put a little spiritual marker. I'd encourage you to make a mark on the connection card. That's not what saves you. It's what you do in your heart before him as you receive him. But we can come alongside you and support you in any way you feel comfortable. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what makes a Christian. Okay, what does it mean to live as a Christian? Is it one of those things? I had, I had, <laughs> I've had many friends down the years. I've always appreciated their candor. Where they're like, I don't know if I could be a Christian. That's going to make me weird. I'm always like, dude, hey, what are you, what are you trying to say? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worthy question. In some ways, though, it's kind of moot depending on what you make of Jesus. If you, if you believe in Jesus, if you reason, receive him for who he is and what he's done, what does it matter, the, the implications of that? Now, okay, it's important to think through. What are the implications? What does it mean? And long story short, we're going to unpack this. John is saying, the scriptures show us that it's inviting you into being the person you were always created to be. Here's how he says it in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Verse 11, dear friends... Since God so loved us, we also ought to love. I, I love the Greek language here. It's way better than the English and can be, uh, trans, as it can be translated into our English because it's so illuminating. Uh, verse seven, the, this phrase, dear friends, is literally the two words, agapitoi, agapomen. Okay? Agapitoi, agapomen, John's saying. And some of you probably, especially if you've been here for a while, you could probably hear the wonderful Greek word for love in there. Agape, right? Greek has more words for love than our English. We just have love. I love lamp. We can say it that way. I love my wife. Greek, you could say it in so many different other ways. Agape is the highest calling of all the loves. It's the selfish. It's the sacrificial love. And what John is here doing, he's saying, agapo, my agapo men. He's saying, those who are loved, love. You are loved, so therefore love. And then he puts it uh, even more clearly in verse 19. We love... Because God first loved us. How did God love? He loved us when we were undeserving. We've just made that point, right? He loved us when we weren't even trying to love him. We weren't even seeking him. Look at verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us. Actually, in the Greek it says, more literally, this is how love is made completely complete among us. So that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. We love like Jesus. Then he says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is so profoundly important. It makes all the difference in our lives as we follow Christ. What John is saying is the motivation of the person who is following Jesus has forever changed. It has forever changed from fear-based to love-based. 
there was this wonderful, tiny little thing that someone said in one of the Explore God uh, videos. It was an NFL player of all people. I'm not sure it was originally his quote. But at one point he said this, and I'll put it on the screen. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm loved. The gospel, however, says, I'm loved, therefore I obey. We seeing the difference? That difference makes all the, all the, all the world. I remember when I was uh, a younger uh, man, and uh, somebody who believed the gospel was Christian by the way we're defining it today, and yet there were times when I realized, well, especially in hindsight, the gospel hadn't sunk down all that far just yet, okay? There were times when I would mess up or do something I know I ought not to have done, but I did, or, or maybe I had a recurring thing where I was doing it, and I just, and, and the response in my inner spirit was like, oh no, I've let God down. It was a response of guilt and shame. And if I was real about it, it's like, oh no, and God's going to get me for it. You know what I'm saying? I was just, oh no, I didn't do this, or I I did do this, and oh no, now I just got to brace myself because it's the proverbial God up there with the lightning bolts ready to zap you when you mess up. But guess what? When I was following God in that regard, it was the time I was not following God for who God actually is. It was a construct of God. Perfect love drives out fear. It's moved from fear to love. We only only love because we're loved. We don't love because, oh, we might fall out of God's good graces. Watch out. I've heard it said this way. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more, as there is also nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Does that influence you if you're a follower of Jesus down to your core? Because the fact of the matter is we often don't, don't live like that. Jesus did not come to establish religion. Jesus came to offer the gospel. We're going to look at two questions and then conclude our time today. Two questions meant to help us reflect on this and apply it to our lives. Okay, So two questions and then we'll, then we'll close here. What does this mean for us? Is it, is it ought to mold our hearts, shape us? lead us to worship, whatever, whatever the case might be for you. First question, where do you need to receive and live from God's love? Where do you need to li- receive and live from God's love? Where might you be experiencing things like shame and guilt that have no part of God's love for you? Where might you be experiencing these things? Look at verse 16. It says it this way, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Where are you perhaps not relying on God's love? Maybe it's based on your own effort, your failings, your opportunities that you just don't see happening. Where do you need to receive and live from God's love? The gospel is so freeing. Perfect love casts out fear. By way of illustrating this thought and giving some tangible examples to it, there's been times over the years when, say, people have come to me and said, Pastor, I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. I haven't been reading my Bible. I love these conversations, not because I want to, like, trivialize what they're going through, because I've been there. But also, more to the point, what John is saying here. I know the feeling. I've been there. It's like, oh, I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. I'm not reading the Bible. It's something I know God wants for me. I haven't been doing it. I missed the other day. And oh, no, now I've missed three days in a row. And now I really feel bad coming. And I go, do you think God is waiting for you to come back into his presence as you read the scripture in order to slap you on the hand? Is that, is that how you think he's going to approach that? You know what I mean? That's how I've thought about it. Is that what John is saying, though? Rather, we don't have a picture of fear-based God. We have a picture of a love-based God. It's our Heavenly Father. I love that word that God gives him himself. He's, 
when my kids perhaps don't hang out with me all that much or, you know, like they miss, you know, I'm not seeing them all that much, am I bummed that I'm not seeing them? Of course. But when they come back to me, hopefully, and I'm not the best of dads, I'm like, good to see you. So much of how God relates to us, we put onto him things that just aren't there. Now, just, now, is it worthy to think about figuring out ways to read your Bible a little bit more, if, if that's the example case for you? Yeah, sure, but not out of fear-based. Maybe next time you go to read the Bible and you're feeling a little guilty, you could start with, Lord, forgive me for you know, not doing something I feel like I, I, I ought to do so I can be in your presence. And forgive me even for feeling guilty about that. Because I know that's not what you want. I know that's, the, that's what you sent your son to die for. There would be no condemnation. There would be no... F- Shame or guilt, forgive me even there. Or say, over the years, I've had people come into my office and say something like, Pastor, I just feel so guilty. I've been doing things I ought not to do. I can't forgive myself. Often in those conversations, I say, well, do you think God can forgive you? And then the answer might go a certain few ways. But let's say, yeah, I think God can forgive me. I say, well, what, are you above God in your forgiveness over, over his forgiveness? Like, Help me work through that. Well, I just can't forgive myself. Yeah, maybe God can't forgive me. Well, let's talk about that. Where in the Bible do you think it says that, you can't, that God won't forgive you? Okay, I guess God can't forgive me. Okay. Does it matter more your willingness and ability to forgive yourself or God's willingness and ability to forgive you? Well, I, I guess God's. Why are we putting ourselves over? Which, which of those matter, by the way? Answer, only God's. Meaning, there's love and forgiveness and grace even when you don't have the ability to forgive yourself. He forgives you. And by the way, that's what matters. But what you can do is begin to rely on that and preach to your heart. He's forgiving me, and he's the perfect judge. What is it in me that I can't forgive myself for? We're not relying on his love. Perfect love casts out fear. I do want to um, deal with one objection, then we'll, then we'll move on, because this is important and good related to what John is saying here, even our text. At this point, some people will say, well, wait a minute, David, is what you're saying then, Christians can just do whatever because they know they'll be forgiven, right? Are you just saying that because God will forgive you, God has grace, he loves you because of what Jesus has done? How is that not to say that Christians will then go out and just do whatever because they know they'll be forgiven? It's a worthy thought to consider. The problem is it under, it's undermined for a few reasons. Number one, it's undermined because, well, if that's our mindset, do we really believe what Jesus has done for us at all? Right? We're no longer living fear-based, but we're living based on love. If somebody, think of, the, think of the, the craziest, most awesome gift somebody has ever given you. You know, what, what's the craziest, most awesome gift somebody has ever given you and how you felt and how you felt in terms of your heart response to that gift? I imagine nobody in this room is like, meh, whatever. Our hearts were probably filled with, oh my goodness, how can I just express gratitude at minimum towards this individual? Okay, think of the greatest gift you've ever experienced and your heart response to that. Now, multiply that by a factor of a, of a million, let's just say. That is what Jesus on the cross has done for you and me. It leads us to go, man, if he's done that for me, if he loves me so much that he came to give his life for me when I was rejecting him, how, how might my life be a, living, a loving response that we love because God loved us? So that's the first thought. The second thought is, well, in terms of, well, how could a, why, why isn't a Christian just going to go do whatever because they'll just be forgiven? The second thought we can say to that is this idea of while God doesn't punish us, sometimes he does discipline us. 
Okay? God does care about us living according to his ways, but it's no longer fear-based. It's no longer this, like, I got my lightning bolt and I'm going to zap you. It's more a heavenly father. How do I love them into things that are going to be for their good, even if they don't see it? Uh, remembering my sports days, which feels very long ago, uh, there were plenty of times where our coaches were like, you guys are missing all your free throws. We're, missing, we're losing all our games because you can't make free throws at the end of the game. You're not practicing them. Get on the line. We're running. And none of us on the team were like, this is fun. You know, it's like, oh, it's like sweat and like run some more. And then we got and we were shooting free throws and we win some games. Like I could see that even though I didn't enjoy the discipline at the time. Is that right? Is that making sense? Or, for instance, looking back on my parents disciplining, disciplining me as a kid. Are they, were they perfect in that? No, they weren't perfect in that because they're people. But as relatively good human parents, they did their best. And there's times where I was like, oh, I don't like this. Or maybe I was a little resentful. But looking back with hindsight, I am so thankful they disciplined me. I'm so grateful for what that helped me into being in terms of my character and all the, all the rest of it. God will not punish you in him. He will sometimes discipline you, but it's only ever for your good and mine. It's only ever with the best of interest for you in mind, such that you would look back on it and go, well, even regardless of that, even regardless of whether we ever see it, it's for, for our good, it's for, for your good. Where do you need to receive and live from God's love? Maybe you're experiencing guilt. Maybe you're experiencing shame. Maybe you're experiencing something that feels like discipline. How can you, how can you lean in and receive God's, God's love in that? And then number two, where you need to offer and live out God's love. Again, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. John is saying if we truly have received what God has done for us, his love, it can't help but begin to shape us into an increasingly life of love. And if we're not seeing that, John is saying in other places in scripture, are questioning, have we really received it? Take this idea of, of forgiveness. Our culture, it seems to me, loves the concept of forgiveness until we have to forgive somebody. We love the idea of forgiveness, Love the idea of grace, but when we have to extend it, I'll put myself in the box. It's really hard to then do. Is this making sense? But the gospel is God forgived us through sending his son to die on the cross for us to that extent for all of our sins. And so when we fail to say, forgive our spouse for a slight or our roommate or our boss who's just ugh, aggravating, the gospel would have us go, oh my goodness, but God loved me all the more when I didn't deserve it. And John is just calling it out. After years of marinating, he's like, if this is really sunk into your heart, even to the smallest degree, let alone as it continues to sink further and further, it will bring you to a place where you see the need to forgive, love, as God loves. I love the parable that Jesus gives when he talks about a servant who owes just an absurdly high amount to the king. I looked at the details last night because I wanted to have it in my head. But this servant <clears throat> owed the king 20 years of a day's wages times 10,000. 10,000 talents. 20 years of a day's wages times 10,000. Okay? Obviously, low-hanging fruit, Jesus is making the point, it's an absurd amount. Well, in this parable, Jesus says, the king forgave the servant. Okay? The servant was walking home, Jesus goes on to say, and found one of his other fellow servants 
who owed him comparatively very little. We're talking a fraction of a single day's wage. We're talking lunch money. And it was all, you owe me. Give me what you owe me. And that servant, to the one who had his debt forgiven, goes, oh my goodness, I don't have it. Can you just give me some time? I'll go, I'll go work it out. I'll get it to you. The first servant with the debt who had been forgiven says, that's not going to do it for me. Has that servant thrown into jail? Well, as Jesus goes on, the king found out about this and said, had the original, the first servant come back into his presence and he said, you got to be kidding me. Are you, are you kidding me? How much did that guy owe you? How much did I forgive you for your debt? Had that guy thrown into jail and locked away. And, and Jesus ends that thought of saying, it will be the same for those who do not love and forgive their brother and sister in their hearts. The gospel, John is saying, is if, it, if we love because God loved us, with something like, say, forgiving somebody, which is absolutely central to what we're called to do. It's absolutely central. If, if God loved us, therefore we love. Forgiveness is one of the ways that's just absolutely core to that. If we cannot forgive, God goes, wait a minute, What? And I would actually go so far to say, sometimes when God makes it, has us in a relationship where it's hard to forgive, and please hear me, I'm not saying this flippantly. When God brings us into a place where it's hard to actually love somebody, forgive them because they're just a... It might actually be a gift to help us see our need for his love. Is this making sense? That's not to say it's easy. It's not to say you'll get it right. Guess what? Remember, you can still rely on God's love, but it's the call. We love... Because God first loved us. Where, where do you need to rely on his love? Where do you need to live it out? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live out as a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is it means to receive Jesus by faith for what he did on the cross. Period. Full stop. End of story. As far as us being brought into a relationship with him. But then the implications of that is it will naturally live its live its way out. We get to join in God's love and loving others. That's what it means to live as a Christian, to love as God loved us. Not easy, but a beautiful high calling. Those who are loved, love. So how might you rely on that love? How might you, you do that personally? You can even use some of the rest of the time in worship here, bringing things to him in prayer. He loves you. And where might you feel a tugging in your heart to offer that love to someone in your life? Where can you lean into his love even this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for something so straightforward, yet so profoundly easy to miss in our lives. To love because you loved. Father, we, we, we want to confess that we regularly do not love anywhere near the way that you love us, and yet you still love us. Perfect love casts out fear. Father, for those today who've been holding on to shame and guilt, sin of whatever form or variety that's just been weighing them down. Father, as my, my friend earlier this week said when he heard the gospel, may it be that, the, that they would feel the burden come off. The burden that you lift from them off. The burden that you bore on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for them. I pray that they would rely on your love. If somebody here has been trying to do things and just hasn't been working out and they've been feeling bad about it, Lord, would you help them rely on the love of God? 
And then, Father, help us as a people, as a church, as individuals, offer that same love to others. Lord, it's hard. We don't have the love. Humanly speaking, apart from you, we don't have the ability to love anywhere near the way you love us, but you give us your spirit. You give us your word. You give us your understanding to in some small way begin to increasingly love like Jesus loved us. And so we pray that you'd help us do that. We pray this all in his name. Amen.